The following is a President's Chapel given by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. For more information about this lecture or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. The Apostle Paul here in this passage from Ephesians chapter 4 calls us to be different. He probably didn't have in mind wearing academic regalia uh, designed to keep people warm in Northern Europe in the winter in monasteries, uh, which we don on September 1, the hottest month in Southern California. Uh, And it makes us different. But it's not what the apostle had in mind, or at least not primarily. Uh, He wants us to be different in a variety of ways. And did you notice how really serious he is about it? One of the great problems, I think, with becoming familiar with the scripture is that we separated from the world. You need to be distinct from the world. You need to be a holy people. Now, he's been talking about that right along. It's not true that you just have doctrine in the first part of the epistle application and the second part of the epistle. He's been concerned about that. He's been setting that up for us right along so that he's talked about how when we were dead, we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, children of wrath. That's the situation in which the world finds itself apart from Christ. That's why these issues are so serious, so fundamental, so foundational. But Christ, Paul wants to say, made us alive. That's what he came for, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we did not want to die to rise to newness of life, that we with him might rise to newness of life. And that's why he said, we have been made alive for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that theme of walking in the good works that Christ prepared for us in making us alive is then the theme that he wants to develop later in the the epistle. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He begins chapter 4 that way. And then walk not as the Gentiles do. Walk in love. Walk carefully. He returns to that theme of how we live out our lives as Christians again and again because Christ made us alive to live. And he wants us to think about that. He wants to think what the implication of that is for us. And that's critical, isn't it, for us as we begin a school year, as we begin to enter into intense study, we don't want to lose track of the fact that we need to be living at the same time that we are studying and that in that living we want to be different with the difference that Christ makes. And it's amazing how Paul tends to summarize that difference in rather simple ways. The life that Christ has given us is lived out in humility, in holiness, and particularly in love. 
And uh, of all the virtues that Christians are called to cultivate, of all the virtues we see most outstandingly represented in Christ our Savior, love is preeminent, and love is the most difficult. Um, I've been reflecting on that a bit, I guess, just because I'm old. And uh, I've lived through a lot of changes uh, in the life of America. I can actually remember the television program, Ozzie and Harriet, uh, where when the bedroom of Ozzie and Harriet, a married couple, was briefly shown on television, it was always made clear they slept apart in twin beds. Nothing salacious even between married husbands and wives. Whereas recently, flipping through the 150 cable channels that I receive at home, almost inevitably with nothing worth watching, uh, I passed by, you'll be glad to know, a program entitled Naked Dating. And I did think to myself, I did not pause to see what that could be about, but the title itself was somewhat alarming and off-putting. Um, I could not help but think in some 50 years how things have changed in America. And all around us things have changed. In all sorts of ways, those of us who are a little older have seen the disestablishment of Christian values on the public scene to be replaced by values that Paul would have found rather familiar and labeled as the futility of the mind and the hardness of the heart. And how do we react to that? Well, I think a lot of American Christians react by getting angry. What's happened in our country? It's easy to be angry and grumpy. It's almost a conditioned reflex. But interestingly, Paul calls us to a holiness typified above all else by love. Not by sentimentality. Not by an inability to distinguish sin from holiness. But by a love for the brethren. And a concern for those who yet dwell in darkness. Remembering that we did not make ourselves to differ. But it's the grace of God that made us different. And that the impulse of our heart should be to see others become different as well. And so in the midst of all the stresses and strains of seminary life, and if you haven't discovered them yet, you will, we are called by the apostle to live differently and to let that living be marked particularly by the love of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 9, Paul wrote, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And wouldn't it be wonderful if people looked at our lives and said, there's the fruit of light in these people. There's goodness and righteousness and truth there. And so as we study diligently, let us not forget to live differently. But we also need to think differently, and that's perhaps what we will more obviously be spending time on here 
at a school. How do we think? What do we think? How does thinking impact living? I'm not sure that Paul exactly expands on the exact relationship between living and thinking here. I think rather the point he wants to make is that living and thinking are interconnected and interdependent. I'm very nervous preaching on Ephesians with uh, Dr. Baugh here, just having uh, finished his uh, splendid and helpful uh, commentary on Ephesians. This sermon actually would have been more interesting at at least three different points if I hadn't read his commentary and been (laughs) corrected exegetically. Uh, But it does seem to me Paul is saying to us that living and thinking uh, cohere together. They're interconnected. You can't live right without thinking right. You can't think right unless there's something new in your heart. I was struck recently uh, by a friend who showed up at a coffee shop wearing a shirt that said, Think less, live more. And I thought, that's a very modern attitude, isn't it? A very post-Christian attitude. Just do it. And the implication is that our choices are to live thoughtlessly or end up like Hamlet. You remember Hamlet, sicklied over with a pale cast of thought. Hamlet could never act because he was always thinking. And so the modern world likes to set thinking over against acting, reflection over against living, and Paul's having none of that. The living Christians are called for is a living informed by the truth. And the truth, when properly apprehended, is always lived out. These things are not at war with one another. These things are mutually supportive of one another. And Paul wants to say, truth is important. We need to think differently. As I've tried to reflect as a historian a little bit on how is it possible that in 50 or 60 years, uh, so much thinking in America has changed about so many important things, It it struck me that uh, we have been bombarded in America for decades now with a public educational system, with media, and with an entertainment industry that has stood in a rather united way against the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And there's no point just grumbling about that. But there is a point in recognizing that and realizing, therefore, that as those who are frequently bombarded by the educational, entertainment, media complex, we have to work hard at thinking differently. We have to work hard to step back and allow the Word of God to be changing our minds, to be changing our values, to be changing the truths that we embrace and accept. It's why Paul in 
somewhat parallel passage in Colossians said so powerfully, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we get our thinking straight? How do we get truth into our lives and into the way we analyze things? It's by the word of Christ coming to us and dwelling in us and reshaping us. And I hope that's why you're here, because you believe that. The power of the word, the importance of the word. Um, next year is going to be a big year for church historians. Uh, 500 years since the beginning, the public beginning of the Reformation. And there's going to be endless talk about Luther and uh, serious neglect of Calvin and uh, all sorts of things that should further make us grumpy. But we should not forget that this year is an important 500th anniversary. In 1516, the great humanist scholar Desiderius Erasmus, at whose name we usually boo and stamp our feet as if he were Haman, uh, did something marvelous. He published a new critical edition of the Greek New Testament with a new Latin translation of the Greek New Testament and really laid the foundation for a return to the Word of God, which is what the Reformation most fundamentally was all about. And so in this Erasmus year, before we come to the Luther year, or more, maybe more importantly, in this Bible year, before we come to the Gospel year, let us return with enthusiasm to the calling to which we've been called to study the Word of God, to embrace the Word of God, and most importantly, to let the Word of God remake us so that we recognize our thinking is so often not right that we remain futile and stubborn and ignorant. But the Word of God is the light that will shine in us as we study and as we learn. And that's, that's the third point that Paul is making here, that we need to be learning differently. You see that in verse uh, 20, don't you? Having called the Ephesians to be different, he said, in relation to the way the Gentiles walk, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out what in the world Paul could have meant when he said, assuming that you have heard about him. Is this a clever rhetorical device? And then I read Steve Baugh and realized, no, Paul is not being clever. He's just being badly translated. Because if you're as smart as Steve Baugh, you know that it's not saying assuming. It's really saying since surely. Since surely you have heard about him. The minute you realize that that's what the Greek is really saying, it all makes a lot of sense, right? 
because these Ephesians wouldn't be listening to Paul if they hadn't heard about Jesus. They wouldn't have any interest in what Paul was saying if they hadn't heard about Jesus. Now, another really great point I was going to make is that Paul says not that they heard about Jesus, but that they heard Jesus. And that's only because I wasn't adequately aware of the subtle difference between the accusative and the genitive at this point. So you are spared a very interesting subpoint in this message <laughs> that regrettably would have been entirely wrong. Um, so it is that you heard about Jesus. And that's why you're here, isn't it? You heard about Jesus. Somebody told you about Jesus. Paul stresses in this letter the importance of the official truth bearers that Christ has set in the world to tell people about Jesus. He, he highlights his own ministry as an apostle who is telling people about Jesus. He talks about the great gift of the ascended Christ to his church, giving them ministers and teachers. And what a, what a privilege it is for us all to realize that every one of us has come to faith because someone told us about Jesus. And that the truth about Jesus has been preserved for us because the church has been preserved by God through the centuries. The church with all of its weaknesses, with all of its failures, with all of its problems, still through the centuries Christ has built his church and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. That through the centuries, God again and again has at times sent his spirit and power to draw his church back to the word. So that not only would people hear about Jesus, but continue to be taught in, about him. Learning about Jesus is not something we do once and then we check it off the list. Done. But Paul is saying, the call on the Christian life is that we go on thinking differently. We go on learning differently. We go on growing in grace and learning more about Jesus and that this is one of the great tasks to which the church of Jesus Christ is called. And you are called here to be learning so that you will be better that you will be more conformed to the image of Christ, so that you will be living out more fully the life he's given you, but also so that you will be able to enter into that great centuries-long enterprise of teaching people about Jesus. I trust that all of you are here not just selfishly to learn more, but also so that you will be prepared by your learning to help others learn more. And so let me encourage you to take your studies really seriously. This is a wonderful moment in life to be able to concentrate on laying a foundation from which you'll be able to build for the rest of your life. And if you don't make careful use of that time, It'll be a shame. Uh, in the busyness of life, once you enter into various callings and occupations, there will be less time, not more. 
And so redeem the time, for the dangers are evil, and make use of the time. And make use of the wonderful resources that are here. You know, occasionally we get students who arrive with the attitude, you know, I really know it all already, and I'm just here for a degree so other people will recognize how much I know. That's really sad. You may know a lot already. That's wonderful. But you don't know it all. I bet you don't know the exact use of the accusative and the genitive after the verb to hear. You could keep learning about that. And I find other students come and they want to glom on to one professor. They conclude that one professor has it all down right, and if I just follow him, I'll be fine. Germans have a phrase for that. It's called the Führer Prinzip. It tends not to work out very well in history. Uh, we really have a, a fine faculty, and you can learn something from every one of them. More from some than others, but still, <laughs> there's something to be learned from every one of them. And, and part of what I hope the joy of seminary will be for you, as it has been for me, both as a student and then as a teacher, is that we really aim at a community of faith and of learning. We're all still learning. And uh, we all are learning from one another. And that's part of the joy of what Christ has called us to. That's part of the joy of what Christ has provided for us here. And so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by your studies, by your reflection, by your conversations. Make use of every opportunity to talk with your fellow students. Well, that's where a huge amount of learning goes on. Uh, we have good students here. Uh, you're one of them. Share what you've learned, learn from others. And, and let that community grow so that we are a different community. A community that lives differently, that thinks differently, that learns differently. And in all of that living and thinking and learning is becoming more and more conformed to Christ, more and more living out the life that he has given us. And so my prayer for you is that this will be a great season of learning and a great season of growing so that you'll be useful in the hands of Christ wherever he calls you to help people hear about him and to keep on growing and learning about him. May God grant that blessing to all of us together. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.